0: This is a wonderful text with which to mark the great redemptive event of Christ's ascension into heaven. In fact, I used this passage about five months ago when I preached in our Kalamazoo congregation on the Thursday in May when at least some of the Reformed churches still marked once again by worship the great redemptive event of the ascension, Christ's ascension. But that said, this is a wonderful passage in which to reflect upon the glory and majesty of our ascended Lord on any given Lord's Day during the year, and so we do that this morning. For nearly 2,000 years, he has been Riding forth in his majesty with his sword upon his thigh and sometimes in his right hand, conquering and to conquer. Riding on his great white steed. I lift that figure from Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6 opens with these words. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals of the seven-sealed book. You're probably quite familiar with the passage. Who shall open the book? Who shall be found worthy to open the book? And the Apostle John wept for a little while because it seemed none was found worthy to open the book, which represented, of course, the whole of New Testament history. And then the announcement is, here comes the lion of Judah's tribe, the ascended Christ. Only he appears as a lamb, doesn't he? Because his power as lion is based upon his sacrifice as the lamb. And he has the right and the authority to govern the whole of New Testament history, opening, opening it, as it were, seal by seal, revelation by Revelation, but what's striking is what proceeds from the opening of the first seal, come and see, and I saw and behold a white horse and he that sat on him had a bow, we read of that didn't he, his arrows in the hearts of the enemies, a bow and a crown was given unto him and he went forth conquering and to conquer. That's a conquering, beloved, not simply of his enemies in that he has the power to destroy them. But it's also the conquering that he accomplishes by his gospel and his word as he conquers the hearts of those who were once his enemies and he turns them, which is to say us, into his friends by his love and he speaks to us certain words and our eyes are opened and our ears hear and we see him in his majesty and his glory and he is altogether attractive to us that's his conquering and to conquer as well and so he has gone throughout the whole of the New Testament age, beloved, conquering and to conquer, gathering his bride, if you will, member by member to himself. And when he has gathered that last member of the body of his bride, the church, to himself, then, of course, history will come to its climactic conclusion, and he will come again, Lord haste the day. So we're going to turn to this psalm to reflect upon his glory and his majesty and his altogether loveliness. That's going to be the first point which will have the lion's share of the sermon. And then somewhat briefly turn to the second point and remind ourselves of our calling as his bride. The attractiveness of this victorious bridegroom, having to do, first of all, with the figure that is that is used, and then his threefold attractiveness, and then there is a second point as well <coughs> that has to do with his, our calling, so that we have to understand the calling of his chosen and redeemed bride. So first of all, the attractiveness of this victorious bridegroom. This is a wedding text a text composed, or if you will, a psalm composed for a royal wedding. An aging king commissioned this psalm evidently as he prepared for the wedding of the crown prince who would succeed him, follow him upon the throne. This is not necessarily then a psalm of David, At all, certainly not composed by David, it seems, though maybe he commissioned the psalm, but composed by a court poet who was commissioned by the king to compose a psalm appropriate for the royal wedding of his son to a chosen and selected bride. David could have been the one who commissioned the psalm, certainly Solomon, who was to succeed him, would have been, from a certain point of view, an appropriate figure of this royal bridegroom. When you think of Solomon and his excellency of wisdom and his tremendous abilities from an architectural point of view to even in, enter into the design of the, of the temple, which was one, one of the wonders of the ancient world, the temple itself, of course, pointing ahead to Christ Jesus himself, who is also the embodiment of all wisdom, so from a certain point of view, Solomon, who took the kingdom to its climax of of glory, representing this great bridegroom, but also by way of contrast when you think of it. Children, how many wives did Solomon have? This is catechism, I'd ask somebody to raise their hand if you're 10 and under. 300, didn't he? That's a few too many wives, isn't it? But the royal bridegroom, beloved, is a one bride son of man. He loved his church, the church given to him. So much did he love her, which is to say us as representing that church, that he would give himself even to death to purchase that bride to himself. Till death us do part, and even through his death not parted, but in the end taken to himself. So prophesy of the greater son of David in the end who who was coming and would have to redeem Solomon himself from all of his sins and his unfaithfulness. So the psalm is commissioned, and the one who was selected, this court poet and musician, is honored. My heart is inviting a good matter. I speak of things which I have made touching the king, the coming of the, of the king who was to be crowned, of course, as lord and and king. It's an honor, he realizes. Just, it's a royal wedding, of course, which would be the focal point of the, of the whole of the kingdom when such things occur. But the importance of a wedding between a crown prince and his bride because of what the hope of the nation was that would come from that union, namely a crown prince who could even replace the one who has married. Because you know your ancient history, you know how important it is that from a king and a queen come a prince, an heir. Because if they did not produce an heir then when the king would die, there's going to be ambitious men who wanted that throne, dukes and generals and so on. And likely there was going to be, even to the point of civil war, disruption in the kingdom and uncertainty. So the importance of the marriage for what would come from the marriage for the promise of the safety and the security of the kingdom in the future. So an important event for the whole of the of the kingdom and what would come from this wedding, from this, this union. But Also, undoubtedly, the one who writes this psalm knew the crown prince himself and had a high estimation of the character of that crown prince, that this crown prince was not someone because of his status arrogant and so on and standoffish, but one who knew the servants of his his father's kingdom and was one who was congenial and friendly and was willing to talk to those of his, of his kingdom, and even valued them who were members of his father's court. So a high estimation by this writer of the character of the crown prince as well. And this honor is laid upon him, and as he writes, I speak, my tongue is the pen of a ready writer. The honor is given to him, He reflects upon what's required of him. He makes it a matter of prayer. And the Holy Spirit comes, beloved, and moves over the strings of his heart and moves him to begin to sing. That's the idea, it seems. He begins to sing the stanza of the psalm he's going to write. And after he sings a few stanzas, perhaps he pauses, and then he writes down what the Spirit has led him to to sing. And we no longer have the, the melody that he uses, but we have the, the words that the Spirit gave him to speak. Let me pause there. It's interesting in the heading of the psalm, to the chief musician for the sons of Korah, mystical, a song of loves. And then there is that word, Shoshanim, Shoshanim, which they say quite likely could be translated lily. There's a hymn, isn't there? The lily of the valley and the bright and morning star. Thou art the fairest of ten thousand for my soul. The lily of the valley and the bright and morning star. Those are words, you know, lily of the valley and bright and morning star that are lifted from the song of Solomon. But Be that as it may, he writes these words. His tongue is the pen of a Ready, writer as the Spirit moves him to write the words. Whatever might have been the earthly occasion and the royal wedding, if you will, the Holy Spirit has in mind, of course, an occasion, an event, a wedding that far surpasses anything that ever happened on earth, namely the wedding between Christ and his church, his bride and being betrothed to that church and that bride, and entering into union with that church and bride, and giving his life to that church and bride, and working his life through that church and bride, pointing ahead then, of course, to the New Testament age and the coming of that greater son of David. It helps, I suppose, to understand the psalm, to know something of the, practices of the day we know something of that of those practices from the new testament from the parable of the 10 virgins five wise five foolish enough to gather from from that ancient custom how it would go when the on the wedding Wedding day, the selected date, the bridegroom, the groom with his groom's men would be in a location and they would be pre- preparing themselves for the wedding ceremony and the bride would have her bridesmaids and they would be preparing her and themselves for the occasion as well. And they'd spend the day doing that. And the psalm somewhat describes the, the clothing that they wore and in its, in its beauty and its finery for the occasion. And then as evening drew nigh, the bridegroom would collect his groomsmen and they would go through the streets of the city to the place where the bride was waiting with her bridesmaid and they would collect the bride and the bridesmaid and escort them to the banquet hall where the guests were waiting and the festivities would begin and then the ceremony would be performed and that would lead, of course, to the wedding with it, to the marriage with its union as well. But preparing themselves for the Banquet hall, you see, and then going to collect his bride to escort her to the banquet hall where the theme would be love, and there would be joy, and there would be gladness. And that's the perspective that the psalmist takes in in writing, writing this psalm. They could walk through the streets of the city, or they could ride upon horses and hear the evidence, as it seems, That he rode upon a horse, gird thy sword upon thy thigh, and in thy majesty ride prosperously to accomplish, that is, to accomplish great things. We must understand and see that the whole of this psalm revolves about the bridegroom, not the bride. Our weddings these days tend to revolve more about the bride than the bridegroom. And we, as bridegrooms, are usually quite happy with that. As the bride-to-be says, let's do this, let's do that. And the bridegroom says, yeah, that sounds good to me. Yep, that sounds good. Yeah, we can do it that way. I'll be there. And he's, he's there. And he goes to the front. And then here comes... The bride and the focus is on the bride coming down the aisle. I'm not criticizing that. You could say that is important if she represents the church and the church is important as well. But the bridegroom better be there, and he better not be completely overlooked. I would hope. But here, the whole of the focus, the great, I should say, the heaviness of the of the focus is on the bridegroom himself, who rides forth with his sword upon his thigh O thou most mighty one it should be upon him from the, first, from the first point beloved because of who he is thy throne O God is forever and ever the scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter that verse is taken by the apostle in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8 to apply to the ascended Lord Christ, even as Christ Jesus came in the likeness of a man, the full divinity of Christ Jesus as the Son of Man. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. If this great bridegroom who is promised is going to be and is the very Son of God, you better hope the focus of the psalm is upon him but more than that beloved it's because without this great bridegroom there would have been no wedding the wedding would have been called off and properly so because while this bridegroom is perfect and righteous and without sin and flaw that's not true of the bride that has been chosen for him and by him is it She, which is to say we, gave him every right to divorce us and to put us away. There was a certain Joseph, you know, who saw that he had a young bride-to-be who was becoming great with child and he thought privately to put her away because you, Mary, I know have cheated on me and I will make it a small affair as I can, not to bring shame to your name, but... It's all over between us. You have given me the right to divorce you and break off this betrothment. And the angel came and said, not so, Joseph. Do not falsely accuse her. That which is in her womb is the product of the work of the Holy Spirit. He himself is God, the Son of God. And Joseph had no right to put her away. But the love when it comes to Christ's bride, who is of Mary, we have given him, his bride gave him every right to put us away. That's interesting, you know, that you find that really by implication in the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1, the book of the generations of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the promised son of David, of whom Psalm 45 speaks, was also the son of Abraham. So in the line of the covenant as well, then Abraham begat Isaac and so on. And then you get to verse 5, and Solomon, not Solomon, Solomon, begat Boaz of Rahab. Who was Rahab? Children know who Rahab was. She was a harlot. She herself committed the sin of fornication, made her living sponsoring the sin of fornication. And she becomes the mother or great grandmother, whatever, of Boaz, brought into the church as a Gentile. She needed cleansing, beloved. She needed washing, did she not? And then it mentions right after that Ruth. And you'd say, well, Ruth is a very virtuous woman. Yeah, she became a virtuous woman. She was born, beloved, and began her life as an idolater amongst the Moabites. She also had to be renewed and washed and cleansed. And they are in the genealogy of Christ, and they represent, beloved, the New Testament church as Gentile believers, especially. And yet he loves Rahab, and he loved Ruth, and he was willing to give his life For them if it was required of him by the Father and of all righteousness. But he by his goodwill and in his love determined not to put us away either privately or publicly, but to keep us, you see, as his own and as his beloved. So this great bridegroom who has so Loved his bride, in spite of her and our imperfections and sins, rides forth as we read to collect this bride, to gather this bride to himself, to take her, to take us to that banquet hall and the festivities of that of that banquet hall. Gird thy thro- th- sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty one, with glory and majesty, and ride. Prosperously forth, that is, ride to accomplish great things. He goes forth conquering and to conquer. And the conquering and to conquer especially has to do with the gathering of this bride in the New Testament age according to prophecy. But let's understand something, understand something well, that before he goes forth to conquer and to conquer the hearts of those whom he loves by his word and by his spirit, he has already accomplished significant victories. He goes forth also as one who has conquered. When Christ Jesus goes forth, beloved, in the New Testament age, to gather us to himself by his words of love so that we see him as attractive and as beloved. He has already had significant victories, hasn't he? And the one, of course, is that he has already conquered the enemy death. When he goes forth with the gospel, he has laid low below that great enemy death. He has been the death of death and hell's destruction. What's striking is that that reality was already displayed while his body was in the grave. Acts chapter 13, as the Apostle Paul is preaching the, the gospel and is doing this in the, in the mission, missionary journeys. And he speaks to the men of Israel, and ye that fear God, and so on. The rulers of the, of the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia. He begins to quote scripture towards the end of his sermon. And he says, We declare unto you glad tidings, how the promise which was made to the fathers has fulfilled in us as children, in raising up Jesus again, as it is written in the second psalm. Thou art my son, another proof of his divinity, you see. Psalm chapter 2. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. He raised him up from the dead. He saw no more return to corruption. I have given you the sure mercies of David. But now this, now listen to this, verse 35. Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, this is Psalm 16, thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep, fell died, fell asleep to be raised again, fell asleep, and was laid unto his fathers, and his body, beloved, saw corruption. As he died, soon after death, any matter of hours, his blood cells began to deteriorate and with the deterioration of the blood cells comes the rotting and the corruption of the body. But he whom God raised again, his body, beloved, saw no corruption, not even in the grave, even in the grave, his blood cells did not begin to deteriorate so that there would be a rotting and a corruption that would set in on that body. It remained, from a certain point of view, pristine, that is a a body that if it breathed again would live again. Beloved, he dies on Friday, he arises on Sunday I can assure you that on Saturday, the alarm bells were going off in the corridors of hell, that something was not going right in that grave and in that particular sepulcher because the body of this Jesus whom we have crucified and who has died is not deteriorating. He's like Daniel in the lion's den, and the devouring beast cannot touch his body. Have we perhaps miscalculated and brought death upon ourselves? Let us wait and see. The alarm bells were going off, beloved, on Saturday, and then on Sunday morning he arises with healing in his wings, and he tore the bars away, did he not? And that's the hope of the saints, is it not? Because he arises as the head of the church. I am the conqueror over death. And so there are families who, in the past week, you know, could lay the body of a beloved brother, son, husband, father, fellow sojourner in the grave, knowing that body is going to rot away. I have a brother who recently died as well, within a year. And one doesn't he want to think about that. But beloved, the promise is, that this great bridegroom says fear not death may take that body i have his soul and there comes a day when i will raise that body again i am the conqueror i am the death of death and hell's destruction and if so he gathers his church and assures each believer that it is so as we may have to face death and will ourselves but in hope you see of the resurrection and also being with this great great bridegroom immediately following death and then eventually forever in heaven with all the saints as the one great bride with all the members put together. That's the first significant victory before he goes forth with the gospel. But not only has this great bridegroom of ours conquered the power of death beloved and the enemy of death and made it his own servant, but he has also as scripture makes known, displayed his significant power and victory over Satan himself. As I said, this is an ascension psalm. Christ ascended up into heaven, did he not? And then pours out his spirit 10 days later, 50 days following the resurrection. 40 days after the resurrection, he ascends up into heaven. 10 days between the ascension and Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit. What goes on during those days? There was war in heaven, beloved, during that time period. We're informed of that by Revelation chapter 12. There appeared a great wonder in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, representing the church, the Old Testament church, great with child. She's in pains to be delivered. And there's another wonder, a great red dragon with his great appetite to devour, to prevent the birth of this child, or in the language of, of, of Revelation 12, the dragon stood before the woman, Old Testament church, which re- was ready to, to be delivered, to devour her child as soon as he was born. Think of Herod and so on. As soon as he was born, to devour, to prevent even the coming of this great child, of this bridegroom. And she brought forth a man-child, and now notice how he's described who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, the power in the right hand of the ascended Christ. And her child was caught up unto God into his throne. And the woman flees into the wilderness. And now seven, and there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought against his angels and prevailed not. And there was no more place found for them in heaven. He's cast out, that old serpent cast out of the earth. And now this, verse 10. I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God. That's the New Testament age, beloved, the kingdom of our God. We're in the kingdom age from heaven. It's ruled from heaven, but it's the kingdom age. And the power of his Christ, his anointed one, the Messiah, for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, who accused them before our God day and night which until Christ ascended, God suffered. Heaven, beloved, before the ascension of our great bridegroom, was not perfect. Those who were in heaven were perfect, but it was not perfect. Satan was suffered by God to strut through heaven and say, what's that fornicating Samson doing here? What's that murderous David doing here? What's that drunkard Noah doing here? What's this one doing here? What's that one doing? Who served their sentence? Where is thy righteousness, God? God suffered it. Until the ascension of the great son of man, our bridegroom, beloved. And he becomes the captain of the host. And the first of the conquering, if you will, after having conquered death, is Michael the archangel under his Captainship goes forth and they drive Satan and his demons from heaven so that the mouth of the accuser is forever shut because the right of the souls of the saints to be there has been laid by the foundation of the same ascended Christ Jesus. And so when the souls of loved ones go, they go to a glory beloved, and there is no accusation. They know by his blood and suffering they have the right to be there and those who will follow have the right as well. And there is a peace waiting waiting for the culmination of the new heavens and the new earth because in a certain point of view where they are now is only a vestibule, kind of like being in the basement worshiping. So you can go up to the sanctuary and it's going to be maybe a little more conducive to, to worship. But it's preparation, you see, but there is a safety and security until that great day comes. So this Lord Christ, who has gone forth conquering and to conquer. And now he goes forth, having accomplished the victory over death itself, the decisive victory, and having shown his decisive victory in power over Satan himself, he goes forth to conquer the hearts of his people by the preaching of the gospel, and the work of his Holy Spirit throughout the whole of the New Testament age. And as this Christ goes with his gospel and the work of his Spirit throughout the whole of the New Testament age and conquers the hearts of those given to him as his bride, if members of his bride, then we begin to see his loveliness and his attractiveness, and shall I say, we fall in love with him. We love him as he has loved us. We respond, you see, this is my Savior, this is my Lord, and we sing of that from the heart. What about this bridegroom, beloved, what about this bridegroom is so attractive? Wherein lies his loveliness? Well, let's understand, it's not a matter of looks. It's not based on looks. He came as the man of sorrows, and there was no beauty that we should desire him from an earthly point of view, if you will. not a matter of, of looks. We live in a day and age where everything seems to be based upon looks, a certain standard of, of appearance physical makeup and all the rest. Perhaps there might be a charming young fellow who has a certain looks that approaches a certain standard and a young lady would say, my, would like to be last out by, by, by that one. That one meets a certain standard of society's standard of attractiveness and heads are turned. Think as matter looks, I'll give you the name of a good-looking young man. Ever hear of Absalom? Now there was a good-looking young man, and he knew it, didn't he? I think the faith, I think, the most important f- instrument in his household was a mirror to look at himself as he would shake his golden locks. And he was a charmer. You better believe that young man was a charmer. He stole the hearts of a kingdom, beloved. They were ready to follow him against Father David, weren't they? A majority of them, it seems. He represents, you know, a narcissist who's in love with himself and loves to be loved by others because it stirs up his importance as he has status in their their eyes. And on the outside of the door, you know, he's a charmer. Oh, he's a charmer. He can speak so smoothly. And then he closes the door. And then it becomes words that are demeaning and demanding and belittling. And you haven't done enough for me. Nobody ever does enough for me. But I want to show you up outdoors that I can attract more as well. That's Absalom below. That's the charmer. That was that son of David. That's not this promised son of David, the coming of the Messiah beloved it's not a matter of outward appearance it has to do with his character and his character is described by the words of truth and meekness and righteousness truth and meekness and righteousness each virtue beloved. each part of that character could be warrant a whole sermon I suppose They have, but let's just briefly say that matter of truth of character means he's a man of his word, for better or for worse, richer or poorer, in life and death, till death us do part. I will be faithful to you. And he makes a vow, beloved, and this bridegroom is faithful to his vow, 100%. And if we wander from him, he has the power to bring us back, Again, doesn't he? We may be unfaithful and fall, but he is never unfaithful. He is the Lord, bridegroom of truth. He keeps his word. He's genuine, you see. What he says with his mouth comes from his heart, and we may be assured that we may trust in his word, every word that he speaks to us. And meekness. Meekness. Yes, meekness. Because that means, though he has the status of the King, of the Lord, of the Son of God. He became a servant, beloved. This bridegroom is willing to be of service, you see, to his bride, to the church. Upper room, he got on his knees, beloved, and he washed the feet of his disciples, those disciples he had to be so patient with and who would forsake him and flee in just a matter of a few hours as he laid his life down for them in death that Lord Jesus beloved in that meekness to be of service to us though he is Lord of all meekness and we may speak foolishly and he does not respond in kind willing to bear reproach without giving it back as we may well deserve truth and meekness and then righteousness which has to do with being upright here that he walks according to his his word and he judges and assesses not according to social status and so on so that if you have a certain social status you get a certain kind of, of justice as you may have in our nation and so on but if you are of a different caliber then it doesn't matter justice is simply swept swept aside no, from righteous from from sea to utmost sea in all of his judgments, if you will. Unrighteousness in the end when it comes to a king works division and chaos as we're seeing happen in our own nation. But when there's righteousness, then there can be unity and there can be peace, you see, and security. So he is this king of righteousness as well. Truth and meekness and righteousness. That's his character. Let me pause. This reflects our bridegroom. Let's remember, men, husbands, our bridegroom is our example, how we are to live in our own homes as husbands, fathers' heads, in the way of truth and keeping our words and to be of of service. This bride, beloved, this bride of Christ Jesus, the church, or even in the text, this whole, as I said, the the, the, the text revolves about the, the bridegroom. Well, this bride, you see, has prepared herself with this groom in mind because she trusts this bridegroom of hers because she knows he's not going to take advantage of her. But this bridegroom is going to elevate her and speak honorably of her. And he's going to say to others, this is my bride. I love her. As you treat her, you treat me. You better be careful how you treat her because I will take it personally. She's mine. Behave to her as I would behave to you and have you behave towards me. And as I have treated you. That's Christ Jesus who speaks to us, you see, concerning our own. Relationships in marriage and so on. Let us pay heed. But two more things his character, but there's also this when it comes to this Christ Jesus that he is the one who has grace poured from his lips. He speaks good words. We don't have to guess whether he loves us or not. He tells us he loves us. We don't say, Oh, we got a wife, she'll figure it out. No. Christ doesn't leave us just figured out. He speaks this. Grace is poured from his lips. He speaks good words, beloved. He says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. He says, thy sins be forgiven thee. I do not hold them personally. I have removed them. And the relationship continues. Grace is poured from his lips and Thirdly, notice, he rides forth. He rides forth with arrows sharp in the heart of the king's enemies so that he defends and preserves his bride. There's a reason why the church still exists, beloved, in the year 2000. In spite of all the power of the enemies of Satan himself and of wickedness and all the rest, this bridegroom has preserved a church and continues to gather a church amongst whom we are members and we represent though he defends and preserves as well, and he's the one in whom we can safely put our trust. This great bridegroom, beloved, who was true to his word and has so exceedingly loved us, as the Lord's Supper form puts it, if you recall. And him we are to serve. And I want to underscore that word, serve it's not simply this oh I love the Lord Jesus oh I I love him it's very easy to say oh I love the Lord Jesus elders have heard that you know from the words of some with whom they're they're working who have walked in sin and are walking in sin unrepented. oh I love the Lord Jesus I'm saved you know you love the Lord Jesus huh that's what you say if you really do then you will listen to his word will you not and serve him and behave as he requires of you. That's the demonstration of love. It's not simply a matter of words. It's a matter of words that are harmonized with and demonstrated by behavior and walk. And that, beloved, is in the text when it comes to what our calling is as a bride. It says, forget also thine own people. Incline thine ear. Listen to his word. Incline thine ear. Forget thine own people and thy father's house. Forsake the world, and every former friend as the as the psalter said, isn't that true when a young lady marries a young man, she leaves father's house, puts father's house behind, and not now not the rules of father's house are what are to govern, but the rules of the husband's house are what are to are to govern. She may have some input in that, but under a new head and new certain authority, if you will, and a willingness in the end, even to say goodbye to father and, his, and his, his house, if need be. If the father's house you leave is one going in an errant and improper and who knows what ungodly direction. Don't forget, beloved, this gospel came forth to those of Jewish extraction. They had to leave the Jewish religion. And their Jewish parents and family said, you're traitors to the cause. You speak of this Jesus as the Messiah, and he speaks of himself as being the Son of God. Where in the scriptures does the scripture ever say that this Messiah is going to be the Son of God? He takes too much power to himself. The apostles, these speakers, as preachers of his give him too much glory and honor as though he's the Son of God. And the apostle reminds them in Hebrews chapter 1 as you speak to your parents who want to disown you and belittle you and say you've learned, you've joined a false religion. No, father and mother, it's you who don't know the Holy Scriptures. Do you not recall Psalm 45, which is prophetic, and you and I know it's prophetic of the coming Messiah? And there in Psalm 45 it says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever the scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. And then thou lovest righteousness, and therefore God, thy God, notice that, thy throne, O God, is forever, addressing him as God, and it says thy God. So, speaking of two persons of God, and there, of course, are three proof texts for the full divinity of the Messiah. You don't know your holy Did you ever hear Psalm 2, by the way? And so, they could go on. But the one, you see, whom we are willing to forsake, take up our crosses and to follow him and to deny ourselves for his sake because he is our Lord. That in the first place, the willingness to do that, to count the cost. And then to obey, says worship in verse 11, that simply means to bow the knee, to submit to his good word, what he requires of me and of us, not merely words, but behavior and walk in the way of love, seeking the well-being of others and a willingness to deny ourselves. So simple, so basic, beloved, but such a demonstration that in us is his Holy Spirit indeed. And then one more matter, along with rejecting the past, saying goodbye to Father's house and even be willing to forsake That, if need be, is required of us. And then living according to his good word, as you find it between the covers, the black covers of this book. And then having a hope for the future, he shall enter into the king's palace. Living with that hope, beloved, with that expectation. And that hope and expectation governing us so that others say, you seem to be interested in the coming of the king, of heaven itself. And in the midst of all this chaos and wickedness are not without hope. Your, your attention and your focus seems to be on something else than just the here and now. Why is that? And then we can tell them why that is and why we don't despair even when things become wicked and there's chaos because we know in the end who's going to have the victory and we with living in that kind of hope and beloved it is a glorious hope that glory you know is described for us in revelation chapter 21 and I John saw a new heaven and a new earth the first heaven and the first earth were passed away there was no more sea that is nothing more to divide the nations and the people And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, now listen, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Representing then this New Jerusalem for the church herself. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them. They shall be his people. God himself shall be with them and be their God. And Now notice this those who have just recently even laid a body of a brother and a loved one in the grave. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Behold, I make all things new, right, for these things are true and faithful. Beloved, my tongue is the pen of a ready writer. My heart is indicting a good thing, the coming of the new Jerusalem. Will you be there? Will it be yours? How can you be sure? Do you love the king? Is he your savior and your Lord? And you show it as committed to him. Then have no doubts, it's yours as you and I are his. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank thee for thy good word, for the promises, the sending and the gift of thy Son, who is the Son of Man and our great Bridegroom, our Savior and our Lord. May we confess his name and live unto him as he lived and died for us and has risen again. We wait for his return. Keep us, even in our generations, we pray, faithful.